Also, another trick that a lot of people do is they'll tie it with the skin facing down and the fibers facing up, but actually flip it over. One of my guides explained it to me that most tarpon hit from below and they come up. I think the biggest question that I get asked at the shop is, um, and it's a big misconception that I usually try to explain to people, is that it's about the color of the fly. I think the major thing that tarpon are targeting up here are bait fish patterns or bait fish. Pogies, pinfish, and mullet are probably our top three. Uh, pogies are actually called Gulf Menhaden. We call them pogies. Crabbers call them fatbacks, greenbacks. There's all kinds of different names for them, but uh, that's probably the main target that they are going after up here. Also mullet, when the mullets school up. Um, a little less is floating blue crabs that they'll target. So most most everything around here is they they target the, the Menhaden is is the primary one and and also the striped mullet which is a common our common bait fish around here so the mullet you know, they school up what time of year do they normally school up is there a certain time of year for that not really they're here all year round um, we'll start to see schools in the summertime and you'll start to see those videos on social media where they're busting them in the late summer you'll see the tarpon bust them on the beach um, which is pretty fun to watch for us it's it's mostly they're always around uh, there's always thousands in schools uh, used to be a popular fish for the commercial fishermen it's a little less now but the um mullet and the probably the menhaden is the more popular fish that we we target and more popular fish that we try to mimic i think the pogies have a higher fat content higher oil content so they get more energy per bait fish than a mullet does so the pogies are around here especially in the gulf coast are a um, commercially sought after fish large large commercial pogie boats that you'll see over and especially in louisiana and port st joe things like that so i think that's what they're up here really targeting so fatty fish maybe taste a little better too huh <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot more bang for your buck, I think, per fish than a mullet. Yeah. I remember I, we used to vacation at Mexico Beach, and there was some guy that would come out there every night, and he would stand there with a, you know, with a uh, a net, just stand there in the sea. He looked like, like a blue heron. He would stand there in the same position on that on that old pier that used to be there that got blown down now, but on Pier Road. And he would stand there for hours and not move, and then all of a sudden, he'd be on point, throw that net out there, and he'd get a whole a bunch of mullet he there were a lot of times that he would you know struggle getting it up out of the up the pier i should say so i'd almost date myself but that was probably back in the early 90s that i was that i remember yeah. seeing him seeing him down yeah it's there. fun to watch the drive down the forgotten coast and watch the the guys that are out there in chest deep water throwing 12 14 16 foot cast nets at tar at um at mullet it's really impressive that they can even throw them but they're pretty productive i've watched them i pull over and watch them all the time and they'll get they'll get a mess load of them and usually there's somebody on the bank that grabs the bucket and runs out with them and they're pretty productive doing that. I can't imagine standing out in chest deep water, period. Not from with some <laughs> of the things that I've stood on a boat and looked at out there. So Yeah, we've seen some big hammerheads every last couple of seasons come in during tarpon season. I haven't seen a really big one, but I've seen one that made, you know, my, the hair stand up on the back of my neck for sure. But not, not the really, really big ones that you hear about. From high atop of world headquarters of Southeastern Fly, this is the Southeastern Fly Podcast. Thanks for stopping in and giving us a listen. Feel free to share this with your friends and your fishing partners unless you want to keep the information for yourself. Subscribe and follow so that you'll be the first to know when an episode drops. Remember, we have the podcast by Southeastern Fly Facebook group, and they have 
provided us with direction on where we want to take this podcast. It's not just all what David wants. A lot of times it's it's what they want, and it's really cool to see the way that this thing has evolved, uh, and hopefully it's, it's evolved to where you want to keep on listening. If you find value in the podcast, please drop by the southeasternfly.com forward slash store. That's where the merch is. Uh, explore the merch, and that's what makes this podcast go. We have hats and T-shirts and, and stickers, and uh, we've got a, a new Turbidity T-shirt. If you've listened to the podcast back early on this year, you know exactly what we're talking about as far as the Turbidity T-shirt, t-shirt goes. We've got a Southeastern Fly, Dry Fly hats and, and logo hats. We've got a, a new Morning Run Flats Skiff T-shirt. Uh, there's a little story behind that, and that's in, if you go look that up, there's a story behind us running out to the Chandelier Islands from uh, from Louisiana out to the islands in a, in a 20-foot skiff uh, on a morning run. Two two boats going out with four anglers, two guides, and we just had a fantastic day. We've got more more fly fishing, less meetings, decals out there. We've got a whole lot of stuff out there. Thanks to all the folks who've already supported the show through their purchases. I appreciate your support, and it, like I said, that's what help, helps keep this podcast on the air. So if you find value and, and you can go out there and take a look at something, you see something you like, go ahead and purchase. We sure would appreciate it. So who are we talking with on this episode? He's the owner and chief fly tire of the Forgotten Coast Fly Company. He's located in historic downtown Apalachicola, Florida, where I've spent a little bit of time. He's designed fly patterns such as the Renegade. He's been It's been published in several magazines as well as online. He is on the pro staff at Dyna King, A-Rex Hooks, and Gulf Fly Fishing. So let's give a warm welcome to Kevin Burdett. Kevin, thanks for stopping by the podcast. Thanks for having me. I guess probably the, the, the big question that a lot of people ask, and I've definitely asked it myself, how in the world did the area of the Forgotten Coast become the Forgotten Coast? That's a good question. Yeah, we get asked that quite a bit. Um, I mean, I think if you came to the area, you'd see why it was called the Forgotten Coast. But technically, it was a marketing scheme in the 80s from one of the governors. And he basically just chopped up the Florida coast and called each one of the sections a different name. We have the Emerald Coast, you have Space Coast. And so there's all different ones. And we, I guess, got labeled the Forgotten Coast most because mostly been forgotten, but I think everybody enjoys that and appreciates that. And most people that live here, uh, they want to be here and they want to be forgotten. So that's why it's here. I've been all up and down that coast, I guess from probably over in Alabama, Fort Morgan, all the way down to, to Big Bend and right in there where your, where your shop is, that area about, it's probably about 30 or 40 miles. It's about a 40 minute drive. The, the, the piece that I like is about a 40 minute drive from one end to the other. And that just, it is a great place to go. I, I really kind of hate to tell anybody about it, but you know, that's what, that's what makes y'all go. So I don't, I don't mind getting the word out and that sort of thing. I just don't want everybody down there the, the particular week that I'm going to go, or if we come back for a fishing trip, I don't want any, I don't want anybody around there then. But anyway, <laughs> that's kind of, I guess I'm a little bit greedy there, but we've been going down there since the late eighties. Uh, speaking of dating myself, it's a great place to go fairly quick getaway it's a good place to escape i guess that's probably about the best way for me to say it yeah it's definitely stepping into a different world when you you know the it's nothing nothing corporate around here we we, we really have to fight to keep it that way and um we want to keep it that way and that's that's kind of our goal um all the young entrepreneurs in the area we're trying our hardest to keep it this way because we love it you know we all moved here for this reason and that's really what we want to keep it we want to keep this you know, it's kind of cliche-ish. They call it the old, you know, the, the last piece of the true old Florida, but it really is. I mean, you 
it's really rare to go anywhere, especially on the coast of Florida and see anything like this. It's, it's kind of like stepping back in time. Yeah. All the, the, let's just take the restaurants, for instance. The only thing there I think that is chain is probably a subway and those are individually owned. For the most part, there may be some corporate ones in there, but I don't know of anything else down there that's not a local person owning it or running it. No, not in Appalachia. I mean, poor St. Joe has some, but yeah, Appalachia, St. George, uh, Subway is the only one. Excellent shrimp because it's a shrimping community too. There's a lot of shrimp boats and stuff there. That's There's just a lot in the oysters, of course, are a little bit going on with that, but still good oysters in the area. One of my favorite places anyway. I don't I don't want to gush all over it, but yeah, it's 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 good good thing. So let's wrap up that tarpon discussion. Now that we understand the foods, uh, food types that anglers should try to imitate, since you're, since you're in the fly business, what are the three fly patterns that should be in every angler's forgotten coast tarpon box? The three that I would pick I, as far as stock patterns, I would say would be a bait fish. Cause like I said, the, the major thing that we're trying to mimic is the pogie. So a bait fish pattern, like an EP peanut butter or something that style, um, a flat bait fish, three to six inches, nice taper on it. Uh, one odd, two odd hook. Uh, it's about as big as we go. We don't, we see some people bring in three, four aughts and it's just too big of a hook. Uh, so that's always something to have different patterns, different sizes or colors of that. That's definitely necessity because like I said, the, the pogies are the number one meal around here. Uh, the next one would probably be a tarpon toad or bunny. Uh, it's two different patterns, but we'll lump them together. Um, they're, they're definitely useful. Uh, they're pretty standard tarpon flies. Everybody has them really useful around here. It's probably between those two. Those are what you'll see almost every guide throwing uh, some variation of it. Usually the tarpon toad or bunny has a twist on it that the, gar- the the guide has that makes it his own, but they're all pretty much the same pattern. The third one's kind of a new pattern um, and it is the game changer. And like its name, it really has changed things down here. Uh, I'd say probably a couple years ago, maybe two summers ago, uh, Mangum and uh, those that group brought it down here, really changed the way that the tarpon reacted to flies. By the time the tarpon get up here, they've seen about everything as they've headed up the coast, started the Keys, you got Tampa, Home Assassin. By the time they get here, well, they've seen about every pattern you can think of. So when they brought in the Game Changer, it really, really changed everything. It's such a nice design fly. Probably the three that I would say that I bring in now. For me, I, I kind of mashed a couple of those up and, and made a, a game changer. It wasn't called a game changer, a bait fish and a tarpon bunny, but I don't use bunny. I like to use possum strips instead of bunny. Possum has a, a wide, a longer fiber on it and the, the skin of the possum is tougher than a rabbit. The way that I run my um, monofilament loop through it, I'll run it actually through the tail instead of some people do a horizontal loop. I do it actually through the tail to prevent fouling. Uh, but when you do that with a bunny strip, the leather on the the bunny is pretty tender and you can actually, I've seen it where people are back casting and it'll actually, the bunny will rip in half at that point. So I've switched over to possum and that's really helped that. Um, and it looks really good. And, and the possum has a natural black tip on the, on the fiber. So no matter what color it is, it always has that black tip on it and it's really nice in the water. And then on, for the head of my renegade, I would just use a three inch foxy brush and wrap it around a couple of times, stroke it back and finish it off. And it makes a really nice profile in the water. It's been a really, really productive pattern for me and most of my guides throw it for me and and um, we've had really good luck on it it's been a while since i've cruised through the fly shop and and looked (laughs) at what was on the wall where 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 do you get the best possum probably the side of the street is good possum there's always roadkill right so the best the best possum right now is wapsie um you can get the whole pelt 
If you call them or you go to a Wapsie dealer, they can get a whole pelt cut for you, or you can buy it. It's called Awesome Possum, and okay. it's just zonkered possum strips for you. Yep, yep. Um, okay. I buy the whole pelt because I like to make mine a little bit wider. Most possum comes in uh, standard or magnum, but I like to go even a little bit wider than magnum. I, I cut mine in eight millimeter strips, and it gives a little bit wider profile. Also, another trick that a lot of people do is they'll tie it with the skin facing down and the fibers facing up, but actually flip it over. One of my guides explained it to me that most tarpon hit from below and they come up. Right. So if you tie it with the skin facing down, they will see the profile and stuff, but it also sees that skin strap. So if you flip it over and tie it, what most people consider upside down then it actually sees the, the, the fibers as it's coming up and it gives it a better profile and look. So most of mine look weird because I flip over the bunny or the possum on it. But that's, we find that's a better better profile and it looks better for the tarpon. I tell you, Kevin, if you think about it, most fish do eat up. Yeah, yeah, they really do. And, and you know, part of it, I think when people tie flies, they tie it for, it's kind of a joke that you're also trying to catch the angler, yes. you know, in the fly shop. So, you know, it, it does look odd if it's flipped over and the fibers down compared to what most people are looking at. But if you actually think about it, most 99% of the tarpon are looking up at some at the fly. So they're going to come up from underneath it. And it really makes a big difference. You'd almost want to make a great big one that's two or three foot long and hang it from the ceiling and say, hey, this is what the fish sees. That's a good idea, yeah. So, and I want to go back and talk just a minute, not long, but just a minute. You're talking about one or two odd hooks, streamer hooks or saltwater hooks. Most people think, oh, I need a really, really big hook for tarpon because it's a really, really big fish. I mean, these we, we fish for muskie here. There's some big hooks, you know, wide gaps, stuff like that. I was talking to David Hankup and we were talking about suspending the fly. Right. So getting it in the zone and suspending it out there to where it wasn't like sinking to the bottom. So you could like move it and really kind of pulling a string with a cat or something like that. And those smaller, a little bit lighter hooks are better. And like you said, this is, this is David Perry speak, but I think you're right. I think those fish have come all the way up from the Keys and really who knows where they come from all the way up the, the West coast of Florida. And they see all kinds of stuff thrown at them these big chains of fish everybody's out there throwing stuff at them and i think that fish are like yeah i've seen something big like that before and it didn't work out or you know something doesn't look natural about that great big fly out there let's talk about that just a minute and see is that kind of one of the things about get going with that smaller hook yeah i think um i think part of it is proportions you know most of the pogey is three to five inches and, and when you put a three to four odd hook on it, it's just, it's, it's not proportional and it, it also oversizes and overweights it. So it's, it's partly proportional and the way that this, they make the steel these days, I mean, some hooks, you know, they're, they're not, they're going to bend out. So you definitely need to do your research on your, on your best tarpon hooks. And there's plenty of research out there on those. And, and every guide or every fisherman has their own brand that they like. Two odd hooks will definitely hook a tarpon and keep them. Uh, you won't lose it, won't bend out. So it's, it's the smaller you can go, the better, but you also have to worry about them catching a large one and it bending out. So I think two watts, two watts, are a really good choice for everything that we've kind of see around here when it comes to that. Anything bigger than that is for this is just too big. It just, it's unproportional with the, if I had a four inch or a four watt hook, I would have to tie a six to eight inch probably bait fish pattern to make it proportional for what I'm looking for. So a lot of it's proportional. Okay. That makes total sense. 
Let's put down the tarpon rods just a minute and let's open up the redfish box. There are some great redfish down there. And there are some times in, during the year that there are some really nice big redfish as well. Yeah, they're not all slot reds down there. I've seen some really nice ones and I had some shots at some really nice ones. Let's transition over to redfish and, let, and we'll bring in triple tail here too, just a little bit, okay? Put down that tarpon rod. We're going to pick up a redfish rod. Let's start with describing the main bodies of water that make up the forgotten coast and you don't have to give away any super secret spots or anything <laughs> like that but just give the angler an idea uh, give us all an idea because uh, i'm sure i'll learn something here as well give us an idea of the types of water the bodies of water the names and stuff like that that, that folks will be looking at when they come down there yeah definitely the um the forgotten coast stretches from about mexico beach or just just east of panama city uh, all the way to over about St. Mark's Lighthouse, give or take. So uh, usually what I'll do, I'll, st I'll start from the east side, which is St. Mark's, uh, and work my way west and kind of describe the bays and, and different ones. And the beauty of this of this area is that each little bay that I'm going to describe is a completely different fishery. And, and that's the beauty of it is that from Appalachia, I can drive an hour east or an hour west and fish four almost completely separate fisheries and that's that's one thing that we love about this area is that, and and i've been here for almost 10 years and i still haven't fished all the waters it's just so much water around here to fish but starting on the east uh the st mark's is a little bay it's called the Appalachian bay uh, includes st mark's panacea area and then also the ocalocony river the mouth of it and then as you as you come around the mouth of it you you cross uh, alligator point or alligator harbor bald point area and you start to head due west uh, inside of that is uh, alligator harbor uh, which is where most of the commercial clams and oysters are raised uh, they're they're spreading out now but that's kind of where the original aquaculture started and then as we head east or west from that uh, we're going to hit St. George Sound, which is a large body of water. Um, and one thing that for the readers that don't know this or the listeners is that we are um, bays that have barrier islands. So we have a chain of barrier islands off of the coast that starts Dog Island, which is not really occupied. There's some houses on it. Um, great fishing around that. Um, and then if you head west of that, you have St. George. And then Little St. George, which at one time was connected, but then the government put an inlet through it or a cut. We call it the cut, but it's also called Bob Sykes Cut or Government Cut. Then you have Little St. George west of that, and then you have St. Vincent, which is the last barrier on there. St. Vincent's unique because it's where they breed red wolves to reintroduce into North Carolina. And then also the previous owner before the state owned it he was a wealthy man he brought in exotic deer and things so you can still hunt exotic deer on st vincent you it's a lottery and things so that's kind of neat um, but the bays the way they go is you have st st george sound uh, which is basically between dog island and the mainland and then when you cross over the bridge it goes to st george you enter into apalachicola bay which is the main bay the most 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 everybody just journalizes it as, as apalachicola but it's actually split up into smaller ones um, apalachicola bay is the main bay from the island or from the bridge over to st vincent and then when you get from st vincent between that and the mainland you have st vincent sound and then once you go west of that you go through indian pass which gets you out into open water. And then as you continue to head west, you'll see that the Cape has its little elbow. Below that's called Stump Hole, which is a pretty popular spot. And then when you round that corner, you get onto the Cape Sandblast uh, beaches. And then if you take that all the way north, 
wraps around into St. Joseph Bay, which is a really beautiful bay. It's where we do our scalloping. It doesn't have a river input, so there's not a, not the same kind of shrimp and things like that that we see in Apalachicola Bay, but the water is really clear. And then north of that, you get into Mexico Beach and you get into that really pretty green water that you see in Destin, all that, that kind of, it's the same gyre, but the waters are completely different from St. George to Cape San Blas. It's two totally different gyres of water. So it's completely different fishing and different waters and different colors and things like that. So it's a really unique area. On the Cape at the stump hole, there's all those big rocks there that they keep throwing there and throwing there. And at one time, I've got a friend that grew up there he's... Well, he's getting ready to retire from his job, so he's he's been around a little bit. Let's just say that. He said that that used to be an, a cut there, and they just basically started trying to fill it in back when he was a little kid. He thought that there used to be a cut there, so it, it would have been open water there, I guess, right, at, right, a, right above the stump hole or below, whichever way you want to point it. Right there at all the big rocks. Yeah. I don't know how true that is, but that's not the, he's not the only one that's told me that. So no, that's, it's very true. It's, um, this is actually my, my background as a geologist, coastal geologist. So this was kind of where I did my field work, but yeah, that area. And then also up in the state park, which blew out during Michael were two historic inlets. It wants to open up and become a barrier island, but we're not letting it is basically is why they have to keep putting those rocks there. So eventually it will probably flood out and then we'll have to do something else. But yeah, there was, there's a, there's a historic inlet there. And then also up in this, up in the state park that blew out during Michael. I think the last time I fished there with Cleve was two years ago. It was, well, it was right after Michael. We did the, the podcast on, uh, on Mexico beach and Michael. And then we came back and did a, a podcast with Cleve about fishing. But when we were there, all those little cuts out toward the tip of the Cape were still cut. I mean, there was still a little water flowing through them, I guess. Uh, I don't know if they've filled in since then, but we had talked about going over there, but we, we ended up fishing too long. So as usual, so. <laughs> yeah, they filled in, it filled in not long afterwards. It, it, you know, it's most of those inlets are just the uh, pressure relief valves from storms. Once it calms down, they, they quickly fill back in. It's always shifting, always moving, isn't it? Yeah, it's a high energy environment. That's for sure. yes let's go on and let's cole asked this question as i I talked to him about the question he was mainly pointing it toward the traveling angler so a lot of folks you know a lot of folks come down for a week they get to fish for a half a day or a day or two days it's not like most people will be able to hire a guide for a week and go tarpon fishing for you know six straight days or anything like that but in the bays along the forgotten coast what types of fish and crustaceans should anglers be intimidated when waiting and he wants to specifically know for redfish um it's a good good question i get asked that quite a bit you know red fishing is our primary target here they're here year-round i call them indiscriminate eaters they'll eat about anything that you throw in front of them but mostly what they're eating is crabs either blue crabs fiddler crabs and then you're looking at all the shrimp uh, we have manna shrimp um, and then your bay shrimp um, and then for and then bait fish we're looking at the same the tarpon eat um, mostly mostly they eat finger mullets a lot of finger mullets a lot of mud minnows different types of minnows that are long in the shallows but the finger mullets are one of their favorites um, we call finger mullets uh, immature mullets that are usually less than like six inches long juvenile we call them just finger mullet those are the big ones uh, pinfish is another one pinfish is a really good bait in the dead of winter because it's the one bait fish that doesn't leave it's always here so pinfish you can fish and you know when it's cold in february and there's no shrimp in the water or anything like that the pinfish are always usually we'll resort to tying a lot of pinfish in the winter which is basically the same as a tarpon the flat bait fish pattern usually in fluorescence kind of mahi colors and then put some stripes on it and it works really well for speckled trout as well as redfish 
for the people that are waiting, there's a couple of really good areas um, and things that, that we can get into. But one of the things that I get asked all the time is what should I bring down with me? Um, like you said, most people are trout fishermen or something like that. And they, they want to come down, they want to try it out. Most of the fishing that we do, we use eight weights. Eight weights covers 99% of fishing you'll do here. Weight forward floating lines work great. Leader size, we usually do um, uh, 12 to 20 pounds, depending on what we're fishing. If we're targeting redfish or black drum or sheep's head that are we know are sitting on oyster bars then we'll up it to about a 20 pound if we're fishing kind of just kind of just saw uh sand flats grass beds things like that um, flooded marsh then we'll do 12 14 uh, 15 pounds so it just really depends on what you're targeting the only reason we go up in the in the 20 pound is because we know that when you hook a redfish or a sheep's head or black drum on an oyster bar the first thing he's going to do is take you down and try to cut you off and um, and bury his nose in the in the in the oyster bars. So you got to be ready to get them get their nose up and um, get them out of those oyster bars pretty fast, or they'll cut you off. We're going to back up just a tad. You said you have some shrimp patterns that I guess that work pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Most um, most shrimp patterns. We we have a couple and the gurglers. We throw a lot of shrimp gurglers when we when it's a high flood. It's we get a good flood tide, not like South Carolina does, but we get good flood tides. And a lot of times those marsh grasses will flood, and you can throw gurglers, uh, shrimp gurglers, up into the flooded grass. That way it'll keep them out of the grass, but also gives you a nice little pop on the water. And those, those seem to work really well. We, we tie a lot of laser dubbing shrimp. Uh, most shrimp patterns work. Shrimp are really easy. Throw some eyes on it. Throw a little piece of bucktail or something for it. And then do a do wrap the shank of the hook and put a little weight on it. And that's pretty easy to do. Um, I tie a pattern called a milkshake. And that's been my kind of go-to and it's a mashup of two flies that actually Dave that you spoke of earlier gave me. When I first started, Dave was very helpful for me. He came in the shop and handed me all of his patterns and said, you're welcome to tie them and sell them. And so I tied a bunch of them and then I mashed a bunch of them together and um, came up with a milkshake and it, it works really well. It's a shrimp pattern that I use it. It's also my kind of claim to fame is it got my personal best redfish in Louisiana. So 40 pounder, which was nice. Okay. On a milkshake. Yeah, that works. So that was happy. Um, happy to catch that on that. We thought it was a black drum and then come to find out it was a big red. So that was really nice. But yeah, shrimps, shrimp patterns are pretty standard. Nothing, nothing special with them, but they, they really work. Um, definitely one thing I would recommend for people coming down here, if you're tying your own or buying them is to uh, get a, buy them or make them with a weed guard. Uh, weed guards are really important. And worst case, if you don't need it, you can always cut it off with nippers if you don't need it, but it's always good to have them. And then if, like I said, if you don't need it, cut it off better to have than not have then absolutely yeah you get down here without and you're you're trying to fish grass beds and you don't have weed guards it's it's a long day right right small world because dave i fished with dave uh for tarpon and, and he he told me the whole he he played out the whole morning the the number of chances we were going to get the waves of fish that were going to come and it played out exactly like he said. I mean, to the almost to the minute. He was so knowledgeable about the day, and he understood that. All right, this is Dave. This is David's first time down, or this probably was my first time down. I just told him, I said, "Look, I don't know what the heck I'm doing." So he just handed me a rod that he he had made, and said, "Here, just show me what you can cast." And he set the boat up, and we got we got three waves of fish, and he said the last one. The last wave is when you'll have your best chance, and that's when we got our eat and got you know cut off right away. It was I didn't have a chance uh, at it, but the the point is, is he was so knowledgeable, 
And then you said that he helped you whenever you started. Yeah, there's there's a handful of guys that, that I'm really thankful for. And, you know, it's 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 easy to forget, I think, when you start to gain momentum of kind of who helped you through it. You know, I've got a couple. Dave, uh, Brett Martino, he was my first customer as a as a as a commercial tire. And, you know, he really got me going on it and really gave me good feedback and, and helped me work on flies and, um, you know, sit in his garage and working on flies and stuff like that. It was really helpful and learning and, and just having his knowledge of because it's easy to tie flies and sell them. But when you have a guy telling you, well, that that doesn't work, that's pretty, but it doesn't work or or that's way too much material. Most guys think if you spend if you have for a redfish fly, if you tie more than three different types of material on a redfish fly, it's, you're overdoing it. It's a waste. So, you know, they're, they're, the beauty of, of talking with guides about tying flies is that they are usually very simple, minimalistic flies, but they catch fish. And that's the beauty of that is three or four pieces of material and almost guaranteed they'll catch a fish. It's a lot about how do I present this fly. And it's good that you're giving some some tips here along the way of tying the fly upside down from what you would think it would be tied on the hook and why. Those are the sorts of things that I think us as, as people that trout fish 51 weeks out of the year, we need to know these as much of these types of things as we can know when we head down your way to fish that one week. Or yeah. You know, maybe you only get to fish one day out of that whole week, or maybe you just want to fish one day. You know, I don't. I used to fish every day. Whenever I come down there, and now I'm like, eh, I just, I'll get a, I'll get somebody, get on a boat somewhere, go out for a day, and that'll just have to be fine because I I'm not going to say you get tired of it. I'm not tired of it by any means, but priorities tend to change after you've been doing it for you know 20 or so years. You're just you know you want to you want to pack in a week's worth of fishing in one day. And sometimes you can do that. If the day goes just right, yeah, you can do it and you'll be super content. So all that's good information, Kevin, really good. So far, so good. It's helpful. Let's move on to uh, the next question here. And David, that's me. I want to know about triple tail. I've eaten triple tail at the owl cafe. It was like everything they've got. It is excellent. That food down there is outstanding, but let's talk about catching them from a boat. Number one, what where should I be? Two, what do I do about stalking them? And we'll, again, let's kind of stay in the boat here. Uh, how do I recognize them? And then how do we catch the bigger ones? Because obviously we're all, like you, you mentioned your 40-pound redfish. You didn't mention the other 200 that you caught that weren't 40 pounds, you know? We want right. we wouldn't know how, everybody wants to know how to catch the bigger fish. Let's talk about catching triple tail. Let's talk about catching them from the boat. Boats, definitely the easiest way, if, if not the only way to catch them around here. Because it's it's a lot of, it's a lot of boating. Usually what you do is you kind of bounce around from buoy to buoy, crab pots, pilings, any kind of structure in the water that you can see. Mostly for us, it's in Apalachicola Bay. As it gets later in the summer, they'll start to spread out, but initially they're mostly in the Apalachicola Bay for us. It really is just driving around looking for them. So when I say looking for them, um, first thing you want to do is look for buoys, something like that. And as you start to approach it, the buoy, you'll see them literally floating on the water. They kind of look like a trash bag, a black trash bag sitting (laughs) there on the water. Sometimes they'll be slightly under it and it looks maybe like grass hanging there, but you, once you see a couple of them, you'll definitely recognize them. But those are usually those are usually smaller ones that are on the on the. Not saying that you can't catch a big big triple tail on, on the buoys, but usually the ones that you see floating on the buoys are smaller. Uh, usually they're fun to catch. They're more aggressive. Definitely will chase flies. Um, you throw live bait, but we've started really targeting them the last couple of summers with flies, and they're really receptive to flies, which is fun. Um, and again, mostly mostly shrimp 
shrimp patterns. That's, that's primarily what they're in the bay eating is is a shrimp. So they throw shrimp flies at them works works really well. Something that has a lot of movement in the water. Redfish doesn't have to have a lot of movement. They'll find it. But when you're looking for triple tail, you definitely got to get their attention because they're hanging out looking and they're looking for for stuff to swim by them. So if you can if you can get it in front of them and they see it, they'll usually usually they're laying on their side and they'll flip up and then they'll just start to chase it. And then it's just the chasing game. It's, it's pretty fun. Oh, I bet that is. That sounds like a blast. There's also what we call free swimmers, um, which is exactly what it says. There's there's lar- usually they're larger ones that are just free swimming out in the middle of the water, no structure. Uh, they're just hanging out there. And, and a lot of times you'll see those when you're running from buoy to buoy, you'll see those and, and run over them. Not literally, but you'll you'll run right beside them and then they'll, they'll drop down out of the water. One thing that we, I would recommend is that if you do run over one, turn back around to where it was, turn off the engines, get set up, and more than likely that fish will pop right back up and it'll sit. It's kind of like when you spook a deer. If you spook a deer and you sit there, most of the time that deer is just going to do a big loop and come right back to where it was. So it's kind of the same thing where if you spook that triple tail, more than likely he's going to pop back up somewhere in the vicinity where at least you can catch it, get it, get on him. Now, those are big ones, usually the free swimmers. And there's some guys out here that have tuna towers. We call them triple tail towers. They have tuna towers on their boat, so it's really easy to see them from a distance. Um, one thing that we've noticed is that um, when you're back on the buoys and all you see is small ones, we've noticed that there's usually little ones on top and then larger ones underneath them but you have to get the small ones off because they're more aggressive so we've kind of implemented a two a tag team where one of us will tease them off with live bait or a shrimp you know spinning rod or something like that and tease them off get them away from the buoy and then the next person will come in with a fly and if you do it this way you need a fly that is a little bit heavier because you're going to need it to go down pretty fast because they're going to be deeper in the water uh, and you need to get down there fast because usually these are out in the middle of the bay. There's there's usually some current. Um, but if you can get that fly down fast below that crab pot or whatever is down there, there's usually a, a bigger one that you don't even see down there. And that's kind of what we've noticed the last couple of years, that the bigger ones are usually there with the small ones, but they're usually lower down. So if you get lower in the water column, you usually can catch, catch a bigger one and pull it up. Bait and switch, I guess, kind of to pull those little, but to pull the little ones off, not to, not to switch out the bait, but to pull the little ones off to get to the one you're really looking for and who would have thought it unless you've done it enough times to say hey there's a pattern here yeah usually it really came about when we were catching them and we would catch one and then the next guy that was with us was fly fishing too and he would throw in right behind us and i you know the first person would be catching the small and then the next one would hook up and it would be a large one. So we started seeing this pattern emerge where, you know, maybe these small ones are floating and then the bigger ones are down below. And, um, and that kind of where that came from. And, and um, so, yeah, it's, it's still kind of a new fishery for us. I mean, they've been around, I think forever, but uh, last five years, they've really kind of exploded in the Bay and, um, and, you know, they're starting to get targeted more, but, but also we're starting to see that in the, in the heat of the summer, there's, there's, there's tarpon, redfish for a little while, while the flats, but the flats get so hot, you can only fish them in the morning and the evenings. And if you're not tarpon fishing, there's, there's, you know, there's definitely stuff you can fish, but triple tail is a, is a, a great eating fish, as you know. Um, Cassie and Melvin that own the owl, they, they really know how to cook yes, up. Yes, they do. They do a, they do a tie snapper. I have to just say this. They do a tie snapper. <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, little mangrove snappers that are deep fried and and i know we're, we're talking about kevin's forgotten coast fly company i get that but i'm telling you the owl cafe if you're down in that area i've never been in there that i didn't make a reservation uh just to make sure i could get in and there have been some you know there have been some empty seats but i recommend getting a reservation even if they say ah, oh, you don't need one at that time but they get one anyway just in case and uh i haven't had anything there that i didn't absolutely love 
nothing. Everything I've ever had there is just absolutely outstanding. I can't yeah. say enough about that. And everybody that I've sent there said the same thing. So yeah, yeah, they're they're golf. They're they're shrimp are probably our favorites. That's probably one of the favorites things. And then um, in the tap room, which is below it, the bar below it, uh-huh. um, you can get the full range of Oyster City beer. But they also have um, Melvin's chicken wings. Oh, and uh, those yeah, those are some of the best. And we've eaten all the wings in the area, so we we, um, we get a lot of food recommendations, or we get asked a lot of food recommendations at the fly shop. So, uh, but yeah, the, his wings are the best. They're not too hot, but they're perfect. Oh, and they're big. Well, yeah. I may just we'll just we'll have to try those. I want to know, so let's go back to the triple tail just for a minute. So I remember in the late '80s, early '90s, somewhere in there, redfish was over harvested. And they shut down the fishing for redfish, and then they tried to build them back up. Do you ever have this this notion that maybe targeting triple tail because they they do taste so good that maybe something will happen, and maybe there's that, that we need to be doing something to preserve them? Doesn't mean that you you know you can't take any home. You know, maybe a size limit, slot limit, something like that. Is there anything? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a concern. We're, you know, as we sit and watch um, more boats on the water, I think this year is more than last year. And I think as we, every year, it's going to be more and more boats down here. Um, and with the triple tail just being so easy to catch um, and sight fish and see them. And, and most times, especially with live bait, they're, they're probably going to bite on live bait. So they're really easy to catch. So yeah, I think, I think there definitely needs to be some some conservation measurements put in place. I mean, I think what, and I've talked with, I've talked with FWC to try to get them on, get them on board and, and we're starting to get some momentum with it. Um, you know, I think the big thing for me is to put an upper size limit like there is on redfish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of fish, there's a, a small limit, but there's no upper size, but there is redfish. And I think, I think it would really help with triple tail to put that same idea in, in place because usually your bigger, large, you know, 15, 18 pound triple tails, which is what we can catch in the bay. Those, are your big breeders and then you're just taking them out you know just taking them out of the water and right now the limit's two you know i'd like to see it dropped to one so i think with dropping the limit to one and then putting the slot limit on it you're really going to preserve those big fish that are out there and the ones that are really reproducing and and carrying on and um and you know there's plenty of fish out there for people to eat and take home and and i mean it is a good eating fish and i don't blame people for wanting to come and target them but it seems like it's always a reaction here um with fwc and things where it's oh well we've the fishery is in is severely in decline. Now we need to fix it instead right. of being a little proactive. So I think that's that would be our goal would be to try to get them to be proactive about it before they start. To, and they they have their science behind what they do, and I understand that. Hopefully we can get some momentum going and get get them to at least put the upper slot limit on it. I like to see. There's also like things that I have issues with where guides can keep the fish that they catch and give it to the clients, which I have a, mm. I, I just, I don't understand that. If, you know, if you're taking a client out, then you should, the clients should be able to keep their fish. But if you catch a fish, then you should go back and, and it shouldn't, shouldn't harvest that for the, and give it to your clients. And, and then triple tail is one of those that you can do it with. And those are, those are just some, some simple things. I think that would make a big deal for us down here. We, we're just seeing more and more people targeting them. I and mean, you go out in the summer out here and, and cruise around the buoys. And I mean, it's 30, 40 boats that are just bouncing around the buoys, you know, in any given day. So yeah, it's getting more and more popular. Well, I hate that. I'm, I kind of hate that I mentioned it, but it does seem like <laughs> a great fish for the fly. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, bringing attention to it, it's not, a, you know, we, we've talked about it, whether or not to, to kind of really start to push it or not and, and really promote it in the fly shop as far as flies targeting triple tail 
directly, but also with bringing it to the attention is also good because it's conversation. And I think that's what needs to happen is just conversation about these fish. And if you don't talk about it, then all of a sudden it's too far gone. So I'd rather be proactive about it and let's start talking about it and seeing if there's anything to do than five years down the road when they're gone or, or with such small numbers that they have to just stop the whole season you know, and put a moratorium on it or something like that. So, you know, we, we're still on the fence with it. There's there's some good research. There's some tagging going on, which is really nice. Um, you know, there should be a lot more data coming out in the next couple of years about what they're doing, how they're migrating, how much, how many are being really harvested um, based on the tags and stuff. So I think I think with, with that information that the universities are doing and FWC getting a hold of it, I think there'll be some changes, hopefully. As much as I love to eat at the owl, I wouldn't catch one and take it there and let them cook it. You mentioned that wait until the fish are pretty much gone. You know, the, the that particular fish is depleted. And I think you look back at the redfish and the way that redfish were harvested for many different things. And then they had to put the brakes on and say, all right, hold on a second. We've, we've over-harvested basically is where we were, the, the road we were headed down was, was not having enough to go around. And they, they put the brakes on. And now, now we get to come back down there. We, go, we all go to Louisiana, fish down there for these redfish, and it's a blast. And you can also, you know, you can get them on the menu from, from places too. So it's kind of a, there's a balance there. But if you let it go too far, it just takes so long to build back up and get, you know, that good catching fish. Doing something about it now makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there's two sides to every coin. There's the there's the guy that makes his living out there taking somebody out to the buoy and throwing a spinning rod in there and saying, here, here's one, catch it. And the whole thing about catching a fish for a client, that's kind of a that's kind of a no no in the fly in the fly zone anyway, you know. That's something that we just don't do that. Uh guides just don't do that. You, you don't even really like to fish at all even when somebody hands you a rod a, a fly guy a fly guy doesn't like to pick up the rod and cast it and say here let me show you how to catch the fish and catch one you can show them but you don't really want to catch it you want them to do it you know it's it's a difference in different experience most of the time for the fly folks than it is like the bait and the gear guys it's just it's just a different it's just a different thing there's not a, not a right or wrong it's a different mentality for sure we see both sides of it i've got friends that guide for we call them meat guides we've got meat guides here um and i've got fly guides and you know we talk all the time about everything and and it's it's you're right they make their living by filling the filling the ice box and yeah you can't blame them for that and they're really good at it you know and they they're really good at what they do and you know I, ho- I hope that we can be a little proactive with some of these uh just not only livelihood but just you know be good stewards to it you know it's it's a delicate system that can tip anyway i mean you look at tampa bay right now with what's going on down there and it's heartbreaking that is and just the i think the lack of lack of action down there right now from what i'm seeing i don't live down there and, and but i'm watching it as close as i can and not really seeing any anybody stepping up and and really denouncing it or anything like that it's 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 kind of hard to watch yeah i'm seeing a lot of stuff on facebook but i don't see anything anywhere else really yeah yeah i mean if it wasn't for facebook and basically captains for clean water and dust and pack and those guys down there that are they're doing what they can it's i don't think anybody would really know about it and you know one 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 accident up the river from us could do the same thing to us true we're one small accident away from it there's some pretty bad things that are right on the rivers when you go up the rivers that, that something some some accident could happen and we could be right there with them very fine line we're playing yeah there's a lot of stuff up and down that river too i mean that river goes way further than just through florida too there's a lot of other stuff that comes that plays into that so well i've got one more question so i guess this would be the closing question 
what question did we not ask that that would be very helpful for the angler that, that's coming down and fishing? I think the biggest question that I get asked at the shop is, um, and it's a big misconception that I usually try to explain to people, is, that, is about the color of the fly. Um, most people think that when you are fishing clear water, let's throw a dark fly because it will allow the fish to see the fly better. And yes, it does. But the downside of that is that it actually allows the fish to see the fly better. And it can decipher that, hey, that's not a real bait. That's not a real pogey, so I'm not going to attack it. But if you are throwing a white fly in clear water, it just gives the fish a perception of the bait. So they're more interested in it. So they go investigate it more. And then you get your trigger reactions from the movement of the fly. And same thing here. And, and that's like St. Joe Bay, where it's really clear, Cape San Blast, that area. But over here, where the water's stained from, from the river, we don't fish really anything, for the most part, lighter than a rust. Maybe a tan on a good, clean day, but anything lighter than a rust, because we want that dark, that purple and black, that all they see is a mild silhouette in that tan, that, that stained water. So they'll come up and take, take a look at it. If you threw a sartreuse in tan water, I mean, probably because it's tan, it wouldn't be the same reaction as the other way around. But if you throw a black and purple in clear water, they're going to see that and they're going to see exact outline of it. And they're going to be like, that thing's not real at all. So that's the biggest thing that I say is match the water color. A lot of people come with the perception that we need to throw the opposite of it to make it more attractive. And that's, that's the exact opposite of what you can do when you're fly fishing around here for salt so if i'm in saint joe bay i'm going to go white close to white if i'm if i switch over and get into Apalachicola bay the the river Apalachicola river is more tannic type of water so it's got some color to it i'm going to go darker there yeah and th- black and purple i mean black and purple is kind of our go-to over here on if you on this side of the cape it's it's black and purple um black and purple rusts olives when you get on the other side and you get in that clear water it's rusts would be the darkest i would go tan sartreuse and white all white things like that and then what if i went even further east and i don't know what the inside of alligator point is is it fairly clear i can't think of if there's a river that comes in there and i don't think there is is there no but it's still part of the bay so it's still all that kind of tannic water I mean, most everything on this side of the cape is all tannic um, when you get over into to the Appalachian bay which is st mark's and stuff a lot of those rivers that are feeding that are spring feds, like Wakulla, uh, those. So, so you do have really clean water coming into it. So, so those days it varies because depending on the winds and things like that, you might throw an olive one day and then turn around and, and the wind shifted and it's super clear because all that over there is open water also. So you don't have the barrier islands protecting it to preserve it. So over there, it's a different, a totally different fishery, which is kind of nice. That's what I mean. Like as you walk along the forgotten coast, it's all different fisheries and all different environments and totally different games in each spot. But, uh, but yeah, that's kind of, kind of the idea over there. The spring feds are really, really neat because it keeps the water cool because all that spring fed rivers are always a constant temperature. That's crazy. I've never, I've never even thought about it. I don't, I don't fish down there enough to really think through a lot of those things, but I can definitely see and see that bakes. I've got some friends that dive up there in some of those springs, I guess there's some of those, I call them caves or whatever. I know, I know they go over there and do that quite a bit. I guess they do it because it's clear if I think about it. And then they go up toward somewhere north of Panama city too. whole other story. But now that you say that, that makes sense. You know, that they're fed by clear, clear springs and stuff where, uh, the Appalachian Bay is, is more fed by the Appalachicola river. So, so one more thing. So Indian pass comes out of, I would say Appalachicola Bay. Is that, do you kind of see that the same way? Is that St. Vincent Sound is right there, where so that's the the narrow the narrow sound right there between St. Vincent, which is the large kind of triangle island, 
um, and then the mainland. So, so yeah, basically, if you're coming from the Cape and heading east, you go through Indian Pass, then you'll go through India, you'll go through St. Vincent, which is pretty small. And then you, and then open once it opens up, then you get into Apalachicola Bay. That explains why that water coming out of there that runs between St. Vincent and that's to me that's still kind of the Cape, but I, I know it's not. But it, to me, it kind of is. But yeah. that water that runs through there is you know, dark and bay looking. And then as you turn that corner, it, it actually it clears up almost all of a sudden, maybe not all of a sudden, but real close to all of a sudden. It's like two different worlds. You go from dirty looking water that's got that tea stain, like you said, and then you kind of turn the corner and all of a sudden it's just nice, clear, blue, almost Caribbean water. It's so clear and nice. Yeah, there's also um, between Indian Pass and that kind of where the rocks are on the Cape, you also have Money Bayou, which is a pretty dark river that comes out right there and it's a pretty popular fish shark fishing area that that money bayou from the money bayou right around the rocks area is um pretty pretty popular shark for some reason those sharks like that dark water right there coming out of the money bayou a friend of mine's got a story about fishing there (laughs) and and it it was a large we were talking about large hammerheads earlier that's what he that's what he saw right there a large a really big one that put the fear in him well and i want to do a i want to do a shark on the fly podcast sometimes so if you can think of anybody that's really good at shark on the fly and i know that's not really a targeted species i've caught them on the fly and dang if they aren't fun i mean they pull (laughs) they pull when they go they go I, i was and this is a side story but when i was fishing with dave we fished for tarpon in the morning then we ran over to little st george and we were just pulling along the along little St. George hitting those pockets and stuff and, and nothing was happening. It was hotter than blazes. It was, I think it was July and we just, you know, I just wanted to spend a day out on the water. So I said, let's, let's go across there, across the bay and hit little St. George, see if we can find a redfish. And we couldn't and about a three foot shark came by and I, I just watched it go by and I said, you think I ought to throw at these sharks? And he said, Oh yeah, throw at them. Heck yeah. Well, the next one was about eight foot long. It was big and I threw at it and it took it. And man, it peeled off every bit of line faster than than anything I've ever seen in my life. It just when it took off and it when it made a turn, it just I guess it just bit through the line and I got back nothing. But boy, you talk about fun! Golly, and I <laughs> it came by and I just turned around and looked at him. He was on the polling platform and I just leaned out and like casted at it, you know. So I'm kind of like casting like this, kind of leaned out to the side. So I I wasn't about to be able to set the hook. I mean, I just so out of. Uh, form there and and so out of the way that i couldn't there was nothing i could do i mean he hit when he hit it he must have felt something though and when he ran he was he was gone oh it was so much fun so i'd love to do a shark fishing fishing show i think that i think that would be a blast the um the standard color for shark flies is life jacket orange oh really yeah, that's what that's pretty much what everybody throws. You'll see, it's a really hard color to match, but that's what everybody shoots for is life. And I'm not sure if it's because of life jackets or if it's just the color, but that's what everybody asks for. I've tied some I've tied some shark flies because the guys will fish for those sharks down at um stump hole where those where the cape comes in that elbow. It's all those bars that go out. Yeah, it's yeah. a really popular shark fishing spot, and um and we've we've thrown some. I had a buddy, I had another buddy that was trying to. There was no state record for bonnethead shark, which are the little oh, yeah. little hammerheads with a round front. Right. Um, so he just wanted to catch one just to get the record. And so he just caught a little baby one. But there, since there was no record, but um, he, he got the record for that. But it was um that was but that was the same color. Um, yeah. So if, if you ever want to go shark fishing or at least have it in your fly box, is that's the color you shoot for is life jacket orange. Life jacket orange. That just that's funny in so many different ways too. <laughs> 
I think that was a pretty good conversation, Kevin. So if you're visiting the Forgotten Coast or, or and are in Apalachicola, or if you're getting ready to fish the salt anywhere and you're looking for gear, including flies, innovative flies, I think I would cruise the Forgotten Coast Fly Company website. You can call Kevin, call his staff down there, visit uh, ForgottenCoastFlyCompany.com. They've got a lot, of, and I cruised the website the other day before we talked our first time, and lots of good stuff on there. He's got some some merch on there as well. Uh, you can meet meet Kevin at the store, and if you're wondering who Kevin is, we'll go through that again. He's the owner and chief fly tire of the Forgotten Coast Fly Company. He designs and ties all sorts of saltwater water fly patterns and you you heard about some of them here and he's got some innovative ideas that have some some really good information from behind them because he works with the guides down there and he works with some tires some of the tires that i know as well to kind of hone in those flies and get those patterns you know to where they'll catch fish and, and not be so heavy and hard to cast that it's that's kind of fruitless to have them so good flies uh, he's on the pro staff at Dyna King, A-Rex Hooks, and go f- fly fishing. Kevin, man, I really appreciate you stopping by and taking up your time to visit with us. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, it has been. If you find value in the Southeastern Fly podcast in any of these episodes, check out the merch at southeasternfly.com forward slash store. That supports the podcast. Thanks to all the folks who have already supported the show through their purchases on the, on the the in the store. Please subscribe to the Southeastern Fly podcast or share it and share it with your friends. And thanks for joining us. See you next time on Southeastern Fly.